0: You don't have to be a certain special someone in a specific way to make a big difference in the world. Being exactly who you are and being true to that and following your very unique specific curiosity down your specific path in the interest and name of a better and more connected world is the best life that you can create for
1: yourself. Hello and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear from amazing people around the world who are solving some of our most vexing problems. And they still think the future's bright. So, if that can be possible for folks like our guest today, then we can certainly feel like there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress going on. Okay, our guest today is an amazing woman. This is one of those times when you just are following your curiosity on the internet, and I stumbled upon the work of Katerina Audley. Katerina is a Nat Geo Explorer, a community builder, and a whale enthusiast. Katerina is the founder and director of the Whales of Guerrero. And what's going on here is that she's a part of a community-driven research, education, and training program based in Southwest Pacific, Mexico, where she is participating in whale research. And she's leading a community to build capacity and lots of ecotourism opportunities for the whole region. This is an exciting story because what I've learned about Katerina's work is that it's a model that could be transferable to countless places around our planet where ecotourism could flourish and therefore communities and therefore goodness and progress and the rising improvement of our environment. Katerina is a travel writer and a photographer since 1995. She's been visiting and living in this little village of Barra de Potosí. I'll let her correct me on that too, since 1997. And she's earned the trust and generated notable interest of the whole region. Even what they are learning in this little village that she's been working in is starting to make a difference in the decisions that are made in Acapulco. And this is huge. This is the way goodness flourishes and ripples outwards. Um, Her organization and her work with this organization called the Whales of Guerrero has been featured in a replicatable model talked about at the UN. We'll get into a little bit more about that too. She's sharing this community-led approach to marine conservation with coastal communities in writing and speaking engagements and workshops all over the world. And we hope that you'll spread the word on her work so that she can support and do more and more there that we all will enjoy the best benefits of. So welcome, Katerina Audley. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. You know, we're going to talk a lot about whales and community building here. And uh, what I find most exciting is that a lot of your insights we could apply if we're just active in their local food shelf or if we're, you know, organizing our community to do something at our local school. You've got these wonderful insights about building enthusiasm and a community that I think the world needs to know. So thank you for your hard work and all that you've been through the last many years to be exactly who you are today for us all.
0: Well, thank you. I really (laughs) appreciate any opportunity to share what I do as my story is an eclectic one. And I think that I've got something to
1: offer in terms of that. So I'm glad to be able to share. Let's just start with a terrific Margaret Mead quote that I think is relevant to everything you're doing and everything most of us are doing when we act in our communities to make life a little better for others. There's this great quote, that says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. This is the thing. You probably went down there and you had a handful of people that were interested in what you had to say and now it's it's reaching Al Capoco. I mean, talk to us about your story, Katerina. All right, so
0: I love three things more than anything, pretty much. I love whales. I dream about them. I think about them all the time. I'm one of those whale people. And another thing that I love is Mexico. And I specifically love this little community where I live and work called Barre de Potosí. It's a fishing village that's about 700 people, and it's located right next to Zihuatanejo Nextapa in southwest Pacific Mexico, north of Acapulco and south of Puerto Vallarta. And the other thing I love is I love bringing people together to do big, impossible things. When I was living in San Francisco, I was working in this museum, and I got to live right by the Golden Gate Bridge in the Presidio. And I started having dreams about whales. I never really thought about whales before. I'd always been an animal lover, but I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. And so, but I thought I just started dreaming about whales, that I would go into the water and swim under the Golden Gate Bridge. And there would be these big sharks around me. And in my dream, when I had a whale present in the dream, the sharks wouldn't hurt me because I knew their intent and I was safe. So I would have this dream and then wake up the next morning and feel that way a little bit all day. My days felt a bit more magical, and I felt like I could see into the true hearts of things a little bit because of this whale power. So I thought, I think I need to go see a whale. There's these animals out there that are wise and deep and acoustic and They see things and know things we can't imagine. What what is a whale like? So I saved up my money and went out on a whale watch trip to the Farallon Islands, which are a group of little islands off of just a rocky outcropping of islands 30-something miles off the coast of San Francisco. And it's a place where birds go. And it's like McDonald's for great white sharks out there. They eat all the seals out there. And there was a chance that you might see a gray whale. So I went out and it was May. So it was really bumpy and really windy. And I was out on the bow of the boat in this gray day. We went for an eight hour trip and all the way out, all the way back, I was like having my Titanic queen of the world moment. And in eight hours, we saw one tiny distant fluke and that was it. That triggered a hunger for me to see more whales. And from then on, every spare cent I earned went to getting close to whales. So I am a travel writer and I made a zine because I couldn't get my writing into like real magazines. And so I made a zine called Woosh, the zine for whale lovers. And I would call whale scientists up and say, I am the editor-in-chief of Woosh, the zine for whale lovers. And I would like to interview you as a featured guest in my zine and would you like that? And and we all love being interviewed. So <laughs> they said, yeah, of course. And oh so God. then I would get to go and ride along with them and get a peek into their lives and learn from them. So over the next 20 years, I learned a bit about whales and I learned a bit about whale science and I volunteered all over the world and I learned how to do this stuff. And I kept going back to Mexico and as this place that just filled me up and fed my heart. So fast forward 20-something years, and there's been the H1N1 virus. There had been some well-publicized cartel violence in our area. And this nascent tourism that had started to take off in the area was just walloped by it. And I had kept coming back, and by then had made friends with the fishermen in this village because I was always convincing them to take me out on their boats. And we were not pulling up the fish that we used to. And I saw that my friends in the village were suffering, that they were not able to pay off debts and things were hard. So 11 years ago, I decided to make it my job to help. And so I decided to put together what I knew about whales and the possibility for ecotourism. And in my travels, I'd seen the very best examples, San Ignacio Lagoon, incredible places where the community is thriving because of their gorgeous relationships with whales. And I'd seen very bad examples of people on top of whales and the whales being harassed and being hurt. And so I knew that the community could have a way of interacting with whales so that both the whales and the people won. And so I decided to dedicate myself for a while to this village and said, I came down in 2013. I raised up enough money, like $20,000, to come down for three months. And I'd been living in Portland, Oregon at that time. And I came down and said, So I really care about you guys. And I see that you're struggling. And I don't know if you know this, but There's places in the world where people will travel from the other side of the world to come be near whales because the fishermen have friendships with these whales and the whales feel safe with them. And people want to be in the boats with those fishermen. And every time I go fishing in the winter, I see whales out here. And I've noticed that there's no whale ecotourism. And I don't even know if there's enough whales to support it because no one's ever studied any whales here. But maybe we could have a look and the community was like okay so that's how it started my project is this idea and i was just this sort of weirdly obsessed whale lady who was kind of familiar in the community and i had done some travel writing about the place and that had given it a boost so people knew that i was someone that could bring some tourism and
1: they were game Okay. So you see, you see a problem, you see an opportunity then, then what, what, what's your, what, what can you tell us about this? Because I think what you're, you have done is a great model for any of us who, who see the opportunity to turn a problem into a solution. That's a win-win for everyone.
0: Okay. So I'd worked as a commercial fisherman before, And I love fishing and I love fishermen. And so I thought my job was going to be, I was going to work with my buddies who I'd been fishing with already for like 20 years. And we'd go out, we'd study some whales, figure out what was out there, do a little ecotourism, and that's what I would do. But I came to the community with a whole lot of love and a question. And the question was, how can I help? And the community said, well, if you want to help, don't bother with the old fishermen. They're they're not going to change their minds. And I don't totally agree with that. But they did say, if you want to make a difference, you have to focus on the children and the women and the young men who are just starting out in life, not the ones who are the seniors in the village. And I'm not a big kid person. I like some kids, but I don't, I'm not like, I love all the kids. And I, my project became a very, very, education oriented project. And I ended up hiring many young Mexican early career scientists and educators who love kids and my whole team besides me is Mexican and they get out there and connect the kids and I do I do work with a lot of kids within the first weeks I was out there with the kids showing them how the hydrophone worked they were jumping on the boat with me I was in the library with them teaching them about whale songs and we were doing all of this whale stuff and the kids were Quickly zooming around on their bikes in the village, singing whale songs, making those noises. And the young men who were starting out in ecotourism were the ones who were studying the whales on the boats with me. Because as I, there had never been anybody studying whales before in this area. It was a, an overlooked place where it was thought that the whales just passed through and it's a migratory corridor and there's not much. And so don't bother. So the status of whales when I got here was there were whales in Puerto Vallarta and lots of them, and there was a ex- very endangered tiny group of about 400 whales known to be in Central America, and it was believed that the whales that came through here would have been bombing down to Central America to calve. As we have humpback whales, and the humpback whales that come here come to calve, and they come to breed. So the assumption was that these whales were coming from the north, from California, Oregon, Washington, maybe, and passing through Puerto Vallarta, passing through here to Central America. And so I worked hand in hand with local fishermen collecting data about whales, and I leaned heavily on those whale, those experts who I had interviewed for years before to give me that rigor that we needed scientifically to collect the data that could be useful, we went out and we just started collecting data about whales. And every time we found out something cool, we got a projector. I got a projector, it was like from Idea Wild, it was my second grant I ever got for $600 to buy a projector. And we went into this village. It's a tic-tac-toe village. So just two streets by three streets by three streets, actually there's the kindergarten in the middle and there was a white wall. So we would have video night and anything cool we saw out there, I would project onto the wall and the village would show up in their plastic beach chairs and sit down and we would just look at cool whale stuff together. And so I brought the ocean and the whales to the community and it was a kind of a curiosity to have this be something. So it became, a early on, it became a really kid-intensive project.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: we did, I did training programs with, with guides. And anybody that wanted to come out on the boat is welcome. And I had a hydrophone, which is an underwater microphone. And I invited people to come and listen to the whales. And the fishermen were kind of scared of whales. They didn't know they were asking like, do they lay eggs? Are they scary? What are they doing here? They didn't know they sang, but people had heard this spooky noise when they were spearfishing at night a lot of the time, which is the sound of whales singing. And so having a chance to just drop the hydrophone in the water and listen was an interesting experience for people. So I got people to come out with that opportunity. So you fast forward 10 years, and now we the women in the village had never been on a boat before. And now we bring women and kids out every week. Uh, And the fishermen donate their time and resources to bring women and kids out. And I or a team member go out with them, and we get to have this big adventure where we go to sea. And it's their first time on a boat, even though their husbands are fishermen for a lot of them and we go out and we go see what it's like out there and they get to have this experience of doing something a little bit scary and brave and be around these big animals and they get bonded and we have great conversations on the boat so now that's a big part of our project is getting women and kids out onto the boats and it's very good for the local fishermen the guides because they get to feel proud and show what they do and how to be around a whale in a way that the whale is relaxed by keeping a distance and uh, being good with your motor and approaching it from a certain angle and letting the whale decide if it's going to come to you rather than the other way around Mm -hmm. so the the guides are reinforced as these champions and caretakers of whales as they take their family and community out to see
1: them. You have this great take on making heroes out of ordinary people. Yeah, yeah, that is my thing. I really have noticed that
0: as I've worked on the whale world, I do get a lot of time now to be around the people that I was a fangirl of, right? So we've discovered a lot about humpback whales and our region, and it's become an important place that the whole status of humpback whales in the North Pacific is different because of the work that we've done over the past 10 years. And laws around crabbing and ship movement and patterns in the north have all changed as a result of our work. But what I've noticed in working with many scientists is they start from a place of negativity sometimes when we talk about something. And what I learned from being a volunteer around the world was what usually happens in research projects is this parachute science where a group of scientists go in and they're very passionate about the animals and they go and they live in a little house and they study the whales and they live on rice and beans and they get really bonded and they collect great data. And then they take it to a conference. They share it. Maybe they publish it in a science magazine and that's it. Then they come back five years, 10 years later and often the place has been ravaged, the whales are hurt, the community doesn't have a connection with them, and the community never really even knew they were there. So what we did, every team member, including myself, lived with local people as guests in their homes, as parts of their family. It was more expensive, but it was important to separate out and to prioritize being with the community and supporting them and by doing it that way, the community became much more aware of what we were doing and much more connected. So this is the experience I was having, was having this great, wonderful, beautiful time of the community where people were slowly getting more interested in whales and becoming passionate. And then I would go to science meetups, like conferences, and People were talking about the the fate of this and that endangered species and what was happening, and they were so sad. And yes. the problem was the people, the local people or national interests or some combination or international were hurting the animals in the environment. And they I would talk to people about, well, what do you do with a local community? And usually they didn't do much. They may do a workshop or a presentation, but there wasn't this real engagement that was deep. And in, and so I knew we were onto something that what we had to do was to prioritize the people and prioritize the community. And if we wanted to do something to take care of this little group of humpback whales that we discovered do come here as a destination to calve and to mate, we had to do something for the people. And so my project turned its back on the whales to a certain extent. And nowadays we spend very little time on the water and we spend a lot of time hanging out with people on the stoop, in their homes, in little meetings, and talking about how can we help, just like we started out. And after many, many years of starting whale ecotourism in the region, expanding it out, and Zihuatanejo, Ixtapa, these bigger cities have picked it up, now Acapulco, and little communities along the way have all picked up whale watching as well. Now we train 80 guides, we're an authorized whale watch region, But a lot of what we do these days doesn't have anything to do with whales. We support cooking classes. We support guided walking tours. We support building community centers. And these are things that the community said they wanted. After we'd been doing this work for a while and we had built up this relationship that was like, I'd been here for a long time at this point and people knew that we were neutral, And well, we were neutral in that, we weren't gonna be allying with one person or another specifically in the community. And we weren't going to be going, chasing after sort of a powerful or influential thing that we were truly, our hearts were in it for the good of everybody. People began to trust us. And then after five years of studying the whales, we had a community meeting and said, okay, so now we finished our five-year study We figured out about the whales. We figured out that there's some whales here and we can support an ecotourism, but it's not a lot of whales. And what do you think we should do next? How can we help? And the women spoke up. They really came to this meeting and said, we want to be involved and we don't want to be captains and we don't want to go to sea, but we want to do more. And the kids gave us a freaking PowerPoint presentation, basically, about what they wanted, which was in-depth, regular science and nature classes. And I mean, how can you say no to that? And so we, we responded with, we started a nature club in Ciwatanejo and we started one in Barra de Potosí. And then we also helped the women become walking tour guides, and we teach cooking classes in their homes. And I got to share with visitors to the area opportunities that I had always enjoyed so much to just go into a four-generation home in the village and make tortillas on a comal and just chit-chat and hang out and get to see what life is like behind the doors. And uh, to me, wow. it, those were some of the best experiences of my life. And now I get to support women in the village who get to share the heart of their home with people who come in and want to experience it. And just like whales are the conversation piece, but it's not really about whales. It's about connecting people with each other and experiencing their own interconnection and the bigger world around them. It's not about the food that you cook it's the 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 comal and the tortilla is the reason that you're coming together but what's happening is you're being in a relationship with a family for a while and what we facilitate is that the women aren't the they're not doing the julia child's thing like you're doing the dishes too and you may be clumsy with the masa but you're going to keep trying until you make a tortilla that works and that's something that i've learned along the way too is For me, it's about Wales and Mexico, because this is what I love, and I love building community. But this could be about anything. We've talked about that, that this could be about a food bank. It could be about banana slugs or trees or handicrafts. um, my cocktail is Wales and Mexico and connecting people because that's what I love. And I love a big juicy question. And the question is, how do you connect and inspire people to work together for a more healed world? And that's a question that never gets old to me. And one of the suggestions I've gotten that seems to be working along the way is that by connecting people together, so setting everybody up for a win-win so that they're the champions is the way to do it. So coming in with an approach to say, people are going to do the wrong thing. They're just going to take advantage. People here are lazy. Anytime I've noticed people say the people are this way, things go off course. And so coming at it from a place of curiosity and knowing I'll never understand what it's like to be from here. I speak Spanish, I live here, but I will never really understand what it's like to walk in somebody's shoes here. But I can every day say, I don't understand what it's like to be from here, even though I'm trying continuously I know I could leave and I could go and do something else and you can't, but I have empathy and, and I believe in you and I see the good in you. And I believe that if we set you up to win for you be financially successful, you have a great relationship with the whales, you have a successful business that you feel proud of, then people are set up to be champions and heroes of the ocean and people are doing that. They are in our area. Our community of guides are the frontline defenders and protectors of the whales. We have a community vigilance program where we work with the fishermen. They have these handouts that they take and they give to people who are not being appropriate with the whales, and they have all of this information and they work very, very well together so that there's never too many boats around the whales and that people are informed. So because people see themselves as I am somebody who is in charge of protecting the whales and that makes my life better. I don't want to be a policeman. I mean, so I'm very happy that I don't have to go out there and do that. I wouldn't be good at that job and it would drain me, but
1: by, and I can't be out there in all the places all the time anyway. Mm. All right. Well, that's just about as good a synopsis of, of, you know, starting one place and ending up another and all along the way, creating wins for everyone. That is just such a beautiful story. Okay. We're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to continue to take people deeper and deeper so they can look at what you just told us. Maybe listen to it again and think of what lights them up and take, piece by piece that you just gave us Uh, that is one of the finest 10 minute examples of a synopsis of a 20 years worth of work that I've ever had anybody share with us but I know how all the kind of people that listen to this podcast operate and they're they're seeing problems that they see a solution for they they want to be good in their communities and I think you could work your way through that 10 minutes that you just shared with us and find your own path almost instantly. So thank you for getting us started this way. Let's take a break and we come back. We're going to hear more about things like the power of snacks and how whales are some of the best news stories in the world and, um, stoop talks, door stoop talks. Oh my gosh. You've got some great things to say about that. Okay. Let's, let's take a break. You know how the constant negative noise in our digital lives feels like it's reaching a boiling point? Now, many of us have tuned out the news and social media almost entirely. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. There are newsworthy stories about amazing progress, innovation, leaps in human potential and wonders in the natural world and they're just not reaching the top of our feeds. We can have access to this, but none of us has the time or maybe even the emotional stamina to search through all the doom and gloom news to find what's right with the world. Okay, enter the goodness exchange. There, we are giving instant access to positive news for curious people. Did you hear about the recent Harvard study that found that exposure to just four minutes of good news can make you 32% less anxious and 18% more optimistic? Well, I don't know about you, but I need those kind of numbers in my life. So if you wanna live with more joy and way less fear, it's really simple. First, you join us at the Goodness Exchange. Everyone around the world has the opportunity to access this kind of content. And we've promised no politics for about a decade, so you're safe from all that distraction as well. Second, you allow this new, more positive, balanced worldview to put a spring in your step again. It can change the way you react to your kids, your coworkers, everybody you come in contact with. And the stories we write about can make you the idea person in your circles. These challenging times call for us to wake up and take control of our perspective. The people who use the goodness exchange have the ability to react to the harshness of the world much different because they know way more about what's right with the world, and that's a resource. So subscribe to The Goodness Exchange, our YouTube channel and the podcast, and use this content to live a more expansive worldview. It is still an amazing world out there and you can be a part of it. Welcome to The Conspiracy of Goodness. Okay, we're back with Katerina Audley. Katarina is a changemaker in the best sense of that word. She had a a heart for a particular region in the world she had a passion for a certain kind of creature that just lit her up and then she found a way to bring her background which is something we haven't gotten to but you have a quite an unusual background can you give us sort of like a little timeline i mean you were born in alaska you have this uh, life of living from place to place to place to place give us about give us a, a teeny tiny snapshot of All the things that you brought with you to to build this life of the last 20 years.
0: Okay. So my family is a long line of storytellers. And so I've always been in it for a good story. So as a result, my life has been lived in the interest of learning and good good stories. Those are my motivators. And so I was born in Alaska. Then we moved to the East Coast where we moved pretty much every year. My father was a civil engineer for Amtrak. My mom was a teacher. When I was 18, I was all about playing the flute. I went to music school and I learned discipline from being a flutist. Then realized I didn't have the talent to be a principal flutist and I don't have the personality to be an assistant principal flutist in a small city. So dropped out of music school moved to the west coast and went to school. I went to Berkeley and studied the origins of Christianity and ancient Greek religion. Again, just big questions about religion and why. Moved to Greece thinking I would study archaeology and learn with my body. Ended up a go-go dancer. From there, I moved to Spain to the Canary Islands because Lanzarote sounded like a romantic place sort of like Lancelot. And there was this thing called Timeshare that you could sell. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that they gave you a free place to stay if you did it. So I sold Timeshare for a year, got out of that, went back to the Bay Area and decided I'm going to be a poet. Yeah, the dot com thing was happening. But I thought what I was going to do was I was going to be a published poet. And that's how I was going to make my living And I did get a few poems published, but then one day I walked into a museum, the Exploratorium. I was 25, and I was very full of myself, as most 25-year-olds are, and I wanted to do big, big, beautiful things in the world, and I hadn't learned how to work with big groups of people yet. And in the Exploratorium, everybody was smarter than me and had things to teach me. And I knew that if I worked there, I would learn how to work with big groups of people and I would learn how to shut up and listen. And so I got to work there for about five years. After that, I worked as a travel writer and a photographer. And I also uh, worked as a web person. I helped start a biotech company. And then I pretty much, I worked as a sculptor for a while. I was a professional Viking. As you're looking at me, you can see I, I look really natural in those horns and loincloth. So I had a stint as a professional Viking model. And so I've had a very eclectic background. I've also been a commercial fisherman in Alaska. And I've mentioned that I also have volunteered as a whale person all along the way. So that, that's my, my very eclectic background. And what has happened to me in my 40s is all of these different things that I've done along the way have led me to this very specific life that I have, where I've put together what I love and what I can do and my skills and combine them in the interest of a more connected and healed world. And I feel like what I can offer people, what my biggest dream is, is to Help other people know that your interests and your skills can also be put together in a way for a more healed and connected world. And as long as your idea is a good one and you're doing something for a better cause and you make your mission and your vision bigger than you and strive to stay out of your own way and serve the mission and serve the vision... And, and, and share it out, then you can continue on for a really long time. I've seen a lot of people burn out and I've gone through burnout for sure. And it happens a lot of the time from not delegating and not taking care and not having a mission and a vision that's shared with a larger group of people and that inspires you so much that even though you might be tired and even though you might be broke, and not feeling well, or like you're taking good enough care of yourself and your relationships, if you have a mission and a vision that inspires you, that's really true to you, that's really specific to you, then it's it's possible to get through those those tough times, because they never really stop, the tough times. They just change the nature of them.
1: Yeah, I'm looking here at a quote that you had about, about putting what makes you uniquely you together you look at all that you know and what you're still curious about and you end up with this super custom life that is yours and yours alone that's a quote from you and i that that when when you said that the other day and i was i knew enough about what you're actually doing today but i didn't know that huge background including the go-go dancer um I thought this is it. This is why a whale researcher's life, a community builder's life in Mexico is relevant to all our lives because of just exactly how you'd explained it and circle back (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. you know, take that go-go dancer chapter. You eventually figured out that you really needed that chapter in your life for what you're doing now. Explain that little, that little one example.
0: Okay. So being a go-go dancer, oh my gosh, I learned a lot. I mean, I was 22 and I was a strong person because I'd been a gardener all the way through college and I had this long blonde hair and kind of hippie look. And the only thing of value to the village was that I was a blonde person in this tiny Greek village in Eastern Crete. So when I walked into that village, it was into that bar. It was scary. It was all men and me. And the whole village turned their faces to me like sunflowers, and I didn't know what to do. And I looked around, and someone bought me a beer. And I raised my beer and said, Stiniamas. And the whole bar went, Stiniamas! And they all bought a beer. And the owner of the bar was thrilled because he got a bunch of money. And the whole village was there because there was a new girl to look at. And it went from that to, and me feeling kind of intimidated and frightened to me being able to take care of myself and my own energy in that group and not get tired from having people around me like that. And so that was part of it. And the other thing I learned was how to go through intense loneliness and hard times. I didn't get paid enough, I was hungry, I lived on cigarettes and beer and I was so lonely. There was no way to communicate with anybody in the US, there wasn't internet or anything like that and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote what was happening and I would send home a letter and it would be like 20 pages long about everything that was happening. And the dot-com boom was happening back in the Bay Area, and people were getting these 20-page missives from me that my father was photocopying and sending out to an expanding group of people. And then six weeks later, I would get a letter back. And this was how I became a travel writer. And it's how I learned to tell my story and follow it along. So I learned how to manage myself and take care of my energy in groups of intimidating people. And I learned how to be a writer. And I also learned how to be very, very bored and very alone and in that time.
1: And I think that those are valuable skills. I love that story. People can see I'm, I'm writing away here, taking notes. I love that, that little sideways thing because I'm sure there are listeners who this, this topic of finding your meaning and purpose is, is, is building. I know during the pandemic, it was hot for a while, but I see it really deeply becoming something that people are chewing on these days. Like, am I doing what I'm uniquely built to contribute? Is there something more? And you know, you may have thrown your whole life into being a teacher, a doctor, an Indian chief, uh, whatever, and still feel like you haven't done what you were uniquely built to do. And your story reminds me that every bit of our story builds up exactly to the moment we're in right now. And yes, if you and had- there's no
0: denouement. I mean, that's the other yeah. thing. There is no there. There is no, and then I did it. You, mm-hmm. If you died, you're done. And besides that, there is no there. There's no big moment. I mean, I'm really lucky. Yes. I'm just one of those, I am one of the luckiest people in the world because I get to do what I love and it helps make things better. And when I die, I get to know that I helped people become more inspired and connected and the world to become a little bit more healed. Mm-hmm. And that said, it could all go pear-shaped tomorrow. And this isn't my last thing either. And there, mostly, I just want people to know that there is no there. There's never a moment when it's, this is it. This is my thing. That's so rare. And it's okay. It's, it's okay to be in your quirky curiosity, following that along. And the more you trust the process that you're in your curiosity and following it along, the more innocence you can bring to it and attention you can give that curiosity, the better it goes
1: for everybody. For you, for sure, but for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely that probably is the essence of a change maker is somebody who brings a lot of diverse experiences to apply to a problem. I don't know who said it first, but you know, most of the biggest problems in our world suffer only from one thing, a lack of imagination. Right. And that's yeah, how we get yeah. there. That's yeah, how
0: we- I mean, the beauty of being an amateur and a non-professional <laughs> is huge. And I think For me when I got here, the fact that I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a very good scientist even now. I'm a well published whale writer in science articles and have changed a lot, but I'm not a lettered scientist. And It's. I feel like if I had had a nice degree in this how to save the world type stuff or whatever it is that I do, I would have come in with a lot more hubris and said, no, this is how it works. This is where we are developmentally. And I remember meeting so many people along the way who have said, well, this is where you are in your place. And I wanted so badly to locate myself and be located and understand what it was. But it's in this not knowing that there's been a real benefit. So when the community sees me floundering around and making mistakes and learning and going, huh, I don't know what that is. What do you think is happening over there with the whale? How many whales are over there? I think there's three, but I'm not sure. What are you seeing? Really? Well, tell me more about that. That is where there's all the juice happens in there. So being bad at stuff has really helped me too. I'm bad at organizing big bodies of data and I'm not very good at managing administration. And so, like, don't put me in charge of coordinating some, some activities and tours. I will be very good at the vision and I'll be good at the agenda and bringing the people together. But the, that, that level is, I will mess it up. And I wish I didn't, but there's other people who are great at it. And so when those people can do that part and I can do my part and I can just openly say, I'm not very good at this. I can still do it. I don't go, I don't do that. I'm not this, but I say, this isn't my strength. And I'm worried if I take that part on, I'm going to mess it up. Is there someone else who would be better at that? It works out really, really well. It's very empowering. I think there's a power in being an amateur that is beautiful.
1: Yeah. Even more reason for that people to start having things swirling around in their minds that they might get involved in. So we can't c- carry on much further in this conversation without having you share with us some of the good news in the world about whales. Because I shared with you, I once was going to interview a, a whale biologist and it was years ago. And when I got him on the phone, he he was like so discouraged. I might have just caught him at a bad day. But he just said there's really nothing good happening in the world, world, the world of whales. <laughs> and of course, I'm celebrating good news. So that was the end of that. But you said whales, whales happen to be one of the places where good news is really happening. So share some of that with us because uh, I think everybody could use a bit of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, whales are such a natural ambassador for goodness because if you're near a whale, you're cast into a state of wonder. I mean, blue whales are the biggest thing that's ever lived and they were almost hunted to extinction and they're coming back. And the more whales there are, the more fish there are because whale poop makes fish. And so you know about this, the whale pump?
1: Yes, I do. We've written an article and I'll refer to people. We've written an article about the whale pump. Tell us about the whale poop cycle, because that is huge. (laughs) More whale poop means more fish. Okay.
0: So the more whales there are, the more fish there are. And so there's been a fear that because whales need to eat so much food when they're up north, they fast when they're down here, they lose half their body weight, and then they go back up and they eat tons and tons and tons and tons of food every day. And the more tiny little krill and sardines whales eat, the more they poop. And they also stir up from eating the food down on the bottom. And then they bring it up to the top of the ocean and they poop. And this makes algae. This makes all of the tiny little micro animals that other fish depend on. And so the more whale poop there is, the more food there is to create the the whole big web of life. And so we've learned that the more whales there are, the more fish there are. So whales make fish. So that is something. And what we've seen is we went through the moratorium on whaling in 1984. And this place that I used to dream about seeing whales under the Golden Gate Bridge back then, you never would have seen a whale under the Golden Gate Bridge. But something magical is now when you go to the Golden Gate Bridge and you look down, you will probably, there's a very good chance you'll see a whale. And those whales under the Golden Gate Bridge are the same whales that come here. And so I have seen whales in this little village in southwest Pacific Mexico and also seen those same whales up north under the Golden Gate Bridge. So to me, that's just a miracle. I mean, it's science and it's a miracle at the same time. And yeah, and there
1: are ways uh, people that might not be whale nerds like we definitely are at the Goodness Exchange. I'm pretty sure we've got four or five articles about whales, and I'll make sure those are in the show notes on this podcast episode too. But you can tell whales they have very individual marks. I'll tell you about that. Yeah. Yes. Right. So that must be part of what is a a draw and a great aha moment for locals and people that return visitors, right? Is that you're talking about a whale Uh you know.
0: Uh, Whales as individuals are huge. And so whales are knowable by the undersides of their tails. They're called flukes. And the underside of a whale tail is as unique as your thumbprint. So we have built a catalog of about 700 whales that we know as individuals here. And all of these people out there, both whale watch people that just love going out on boats and scientists have been out there, and they've all been taking pictures of the undersides of whale flukes for 50 years now. And they've all been uploaded to this catalog called Happy Whale. And that's a universal whale ID catalog. And now Happy Whale has a way that you can take a picture of a whale fluke, upload it, and in that moment, Happy Whale can instantly ID your whale and give you a map of where the whale was, where it's been, when it was first photographed. If we know if it's a male or female, it's all there. And people can name and adopt these whales. And that's one way our program supports itself is we partner with Happy Whale and people can name and adopt the humpback whales. And then they get an email every time their whale is sighted again. So people have become so connected with their individual whales and Once you get connected with one whale, you care about the whole ocean. It just changes everything. So we've learned that through local people. When we have a a gratitude ceremony at the end of every year, we give some whales out to people who are local, who have done, really gone to great strides to be good marine champions and community builders. They get to name and adopt a whale. And that's a moment of pride now. It's also something that we connect schools and people around the world with. So that's a, it's wow. a beautiful thing. And it's amazing that we know almost 90% of the humpback whales now as individuals.
1: That's wow. just incredible to me. That is incredible. You know, I, I just have to support what you just said. My husband and I, before we, we became dentists and and before we had children, we had this lovely time zone there where we did a lot of fun stuff. And one of the things we did was go on the cetaceans S- society. Back then there was the, the cetacean society and yeah. they had a... Yeah. And we went on their one of their research trips with them for about two weeks that went all the way down the coast from San Diego south. And you went out and then you just waited, like you say, for the whale to come to you. And I have the most extraordinary picture where it's probably if the building was on fire here at my house. I'd probably run and grab that picture, but a baby, a, a mother whale did bring her gray whale calf up to the boat side of Chuck's boat. And he's being a dentist. Um, <laughs> he, he was able to just have his hand in this, in this baby whale's mouth with its baleen is wide open and it's so great. And it was all whale inspired. I mean, he, there's nothing Chuck did to make this happen. And because of that, you know, we've always had a special bond with, with that particular corner of nature, because we had a, a lived experience, travel is is very often a way to just go and get away and do as little as possible, and maybe just be weighted on hand and foot or go to a sandals resort and do nothing except for exactly what you want to do. But the real memories in life are made in going to places like like you're, you're working with, where you're making a community better by being there, you're learning all the things you've said about all the women teaching others to cook and everything else. I mean, your whole community, it sounds like to me, has found a way to engage with this new resource. That's something that was always there, but now looks like a new resource. Is that a pretty good?
0: Yeah, it is. and um, I I, I appreciate the shout out for ecotourism that feeds into a local community as well. We have so many good hearted people that write to us and want to be a volunteer for us. And we don't, have a volunteer program because all of our energy goes into supporting young local leaders. And so our whole team is paid and our whole team are Mexican because I want the kids and the women and the young people in the community to see themselves and the people that are doing this work. And I acknowledge that I am a white woman from America doing this work and my whole challenge is about how to get out of my own way and listen more and talk less
1: and it's a very worthy challenge so we've talked about so many things <laughs> we had such an organized conversation plan didn't we we've <laughs> gone all over the place today and I cannot I, I can see also that there's a future where we talk again on this podcast but I want to make sure that in this interview we talk about the importance of how how all change is local and it even gets more micro level than that, that some of the best change starts with stoop conversation. Like we're not going to go out and like I mentioned at the very top, you're just not going to go, go to the mayor, find the mayor in a town and talk to all the council people and sell an idea to everybody way up there. It really comes down to working things out on somebody's around somebody's kitchen table or their door, door stoop. So tell me some of the things you've learned about that.
0: Yeah. So my my question is, how do you build a community that identifies itself as a community that prioritizes the common good of everybody, animals, people, nature alike? That's the question and that's the challenge. And what I've learned is that this does not happen at the big meetings. It doesn't happen from the top in this community. What I asked in this community is if i want to help how can i do so and when we decide to form a group of say women cooks or women tour guides or men who are whale watch guides they, i ask them how do you want to organize and they say we work in co-ops and we work in teams we don't work individually and the if there's a leader it has to change a lot once a year maybe once every two years And there has to be a lot of community transparency, communication. So what I've learned is that it's easy in Mexico. We love ceremony. We love awards and having the certificate and shaking hands, but that's not where changes of heart happen. Changes of heart and real thought happen in the quiet of a home, in a safe place. It can be at sea or it can be at home, but I, always have a pot of coffee on and I always have a cold sparkling beverage waiting and I have really good snacks. And so when someone comes by, they almost always end up sitting down and shooting the breeze with me about what they think about how things should go. So for example, I had a meeting last night as we're working on how to make this community center, a more self-sustaining heavily used place. And before the meeting, I talked to every single person who was going to be at that meeting and listened to them and heard out what they think are the weaknesses and the strengths and how they think it should go and what are their specific reasons why they want to do more or less, where they think that the challenges are. And then we prepared so that when the meeting happened, I could say, can you make sure to bring that up? And can I mention that you talked about this in privacy with me? And these are going to be the four things that we're going to talk about in the meeting. And so then by the time we had the meeting, people hate meetings, but my meetings are great because they're short, they're punctual, and then they end. And again, there's always good snacks and it's always in a circle. These are how to have good meetings. And so there's been all of these great talks that happen. They happen on the stoop. They happen in the hammock. And that's where the real changes of heart come. And then you eat together, you drink together, and this builds trust and it, it builds a friendship. So then when you need people to make a leap of faith, that is going to be maybe a little bit of a sacrifice. Like this year, we didn't have enough money to take women and children out. And we didn't have enough money to run our studies as we were very over underfunded this year so i brought it to the community and said okay so this year what are we going to do there's ecotourism and you guys are doing that and we'll jump on the boat with you and collect opportunistic data as much as we can and translate and continue to help but then the fishermen were like okay well what about the women and the children and what about the the study and i said we didn't make enough money to support that and they said well they have to go because with they've been going and it's important and people need to see it so now this year we're just going to each donate one departure with the women and children and we're just going to charge gas to get out and see the whales so i do this like lazy person's whale watching thing now where i there's a competitive group out there our WhatsApp group lights up says there's a competitive group it's within a mile I run out with my gear, go get pictures of those tails and come zooming back to the office. It's very, very fun. It's nice to be out at sea looking openly. And that's a better way to collect more broad data if you're doing population study work. But to just get those tails, it's very efficient. And this has happened as a result of years and years and years of benefiting the community And of having a lot of quiet conversations and spending time one-on-one at sea, listening to people share themselves. And it didn't happen overnight. I don't think it ever can. I think that it takes four or five years to get that kind of a relationship going. And you have to have some proven success before people will take those kinds of leaps of faith. But it is beautiful When you get into a vulnerable moment like we are now, when there's not enough money and the community is still committed to making it happen. And someday we'll have money again and we will be able to pay (laughs) because people need to get paid. But it's really, really beautiful that that as a result of all of those nice long chats over a cold
1: drink and a cookie, we've built this kind of thing. It's such. uh, okay, so. This episode is going to be a long one to start with. And, and what you have is just an extraordinary amount of knowledge about you, you say, I don't have a playlist. I have an approach and I do want to share that, that big chunk of knowledge with everybody on this podcast. So will you come back and let me interview you again? I'd love to. Yeah. But I don't want to wrap up until we really get on the table here. What can people do to help? Because. This is a, is a noble quest that you're on here for a whole lot of reasons. It's so shareable. It's, it's a wonder for the environment all around you. It's a wonder for the lives of children. Just think, Katarina, how this effort that you're involved in will change the, the life of thousands over the scope of time, generations from now, right? That yeah. the wonder in just that is so amazing. So what can people do to help if it's just donations? Great. I don't care. Whatever, whatever you need from us. I want people to know because I'll very often on this podcast, what people say they need is what, what we help them get.
0: So the number one thing that we need to keep going are donations. And okay. so there are a few ways that people can donate to our program. One of them is through the adopt a Well program that we share okay. with happy Well. And so, 50% of whale adoptions, when people adopt a whale through Whales of Guerrero, it goes to Happy Whale, and 50% goes to us. And that is what saved us last year: was people around the world adopted whales, and not even Whales of Guerrero, but whales in Antarctica. And these adoptions from people going to Antarctica, going on a cruise and auctioning off naming rights for a whale actually are supporting us in Mexico to connect a community with whales that is then changing crabbing and fishing and ship traffic laws in California and whales are safer and the ocean is healthier because there's more whales, there's more fish and the ocean is being restored. And then there's this wonderful opportunity for wonder for people to get out and connect with whales. And so it's a real win-win, not just for our region, but for whales and people around the world when we're supported as a project. We also are a nonprofit in the u.s and so any donations that people can give to whalesinmexico.com are greatly appreciated another way we can be supported is we're looking for more opportunities to share our story i'm trying to figure out how to get what we've learned along the way out and i do want to emphasize there is no there i don't declare any of this healed or better but as you say, we have touched thousands of people and I do sleep well at night knowing that I've made a positive difference in the lives of many, many people and that people are prioritizing the common good of of the ocean and humans alike as a result of our being here. And that feels pretty wonderful. So I'm always, one of the things that I love the most these days individually is I love sharing our story. And so we have been out sharing our story in Kenya, on the coast of Oregon, here in Mexico. I teach all up and down the coast and I work in Spanish and in English. And I'm looking for an opportunity to write a book about this. I'm looking for opportunities to share this through talks and through workshops and looking for opportunities to facilitate conversations in other communities. They don't even have to be coastal communities to talk about and listen to people sharing how they think we can all work together for a more connected and engaged
1: world around us. And that's a way to say she does a lot of public speaking, so you can hire her. (laughs) And that's great. I mean, this is what we want. I feel bad about the fact people who are doing good in the world feel like they have to be too humble because you are a marvelous innovator and bring a wonderful heart and, uh, and storyteller to this, this really connectable way of thinking about community change and improving the lives of everybody and the environment all at the same time time. It's just so marvelous. I'm planning on creating a whole playlist on the Goodness Exchange YouTube channel. People should go there already. There's more than 300 videos there of one minute long, all the way up to full interviews. And what we're trying to do is create a place on the internet where people can go and find all kinds of fresh ideas and have access to innovators like yourself. So maybe you can skip a few stages and you can help help realize your dream and not have to go through 10 years worth of struggles. And that's exactly, I, I've talked to Katerina already about these 10 tips that she's, she's going to share with us in our next interview. And um, man it can make things go beautifully in our communities. If we don't have to do the trial and error and mistake stages quite so long.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that one of the, I went to a talk one time where they talked about the mistakes they made. And I realized we're so prurient, all of us. And it, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's uh, it's our being good survivors that we want to know what mistakes other people made. And that's why I'm brave about sharing my mistakes is I just don't want other people to make them if they can be avoided. And sometimes you need to learn. But if we can learn from each other, I can be vulnerable and be very honest about the mistakes that I made along the way. Yeah. And I think that that's really fascinating for other people to get to learn. And if people are in a stage developmentally to hear it because I, you know, I've learned a lot in 11 years. And so, well, in 51 years now, and so I wasn't ready to learn to receive and absorb and change and grow as a result of some of the tips I was given along the way. And then 30 years later I heard it and went, Oh, so, but there's, if there's a way for me to get my, mistakes out there to reach people, to help them, as you say, jump ahead because they got that tip, then I am all in to to help
1: with that. All right. Let's do it. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough. If this interview had only been three minutes long and there was like one thing, sometimes you watch the news or you know what's happening in in depth over here or there. If there was just one thing that you wish people knew, what would it be, Katarina? If there was one thing I wish people knew, I, it would be that
0: you don't have to be a certain special someone in a specific way to make a big difference in the world. It, being exactly who you are and being true to that and following your passion and your curiosity. Passion is too lofty a word. Following your very unique specific curiosity down your specific path in the interest and name of a better and more connected world is the best life that you can create for yourself. And I want everybody in the world to know that and to take heart and be excited by whatever your quirky curiosities are and follow them unapologetically and joyfully and know that there is a way to put together what you love and what you're good at for a more healed and connected world. And if enough of us do that, it is that Margaret Mead quote. I mean, just the people out there doing tiny little things. I mean, I love this about your podcast because it's got, it's exactly this. It's these little pinpoints of light around the world of people who are just bing, bing, putting in their their moment. And This is what keeps me boosted is knowing I feel very supported by this network of other people who I've never met, most of them. And I'm honored to be a part of the team that's pulling at those oars to help
1: our world be healthy and connected. Oh, that is just such a beautiful way to wrap up this interview. Okay, there will be a part two. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange. If you want to meet, hundreds more people with their own take on exactly what katarina just said hit up the goodness exchange once a day and it'll improve your your outlook on the world radically and thank you katarina oddly people can google just google her name she's a net geo explorer and we're going to ask her about that next time because that's a whole other world of of interest interesting details okay i hope the goodness and fresh ideas that we talked about today will help you with the spring in your step and you will work through the next week with a lot more energy and optimism. And then see us again next Wednesday. Thanks. Thanks, Katerina. Thank you, Linda. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.